Today's episode of Menu Feed is brought to you by Bush's Best. Now you can offer fresh-made hummus with ease. Bush's Best Classic Hummus Made Easy works in any operation. To prepare, all you have to do is combine with one number 10 can of Bush's Best garbanzo or low-sodium garbanzo beans and blend to desired consistency. The result? Great hummus with no hassle. For more information, visit bushbeansfoodservice.com. episode of Menu Feed, editors Pat Kobe and Heather Lolly sit down with Zach Engel and Andres Clavero, partners in Galit, a chef-driven Middle Eastern restaurant in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago. Their menu takes a seasonal and localized approach, elevating familiar dishes like falafel and hummus, while introducing guests to less familiar ingredients that characterize the cuisine. Let's listen as Zach and Andres share how they've created a very successful neighborhood restaurant by making employee culture and service a top priority along with food and drink. Welcome, Zach and Andres. Let's talk a little bit about your vision for Galit, how you wanted to create a neighborhood restaurant with elevated Middle Eastern cuisine. Um, Yeah, so I guess... A neighborhood restaurant has its own identity, and whatever is being served there will eventually define it. So we kind of like to think of it as two separate entities um, where we're creating an ambiance, a sense of hospitality and welcoming for our neighbors um, and um, people that are coming often. Uh, and we just so happen to be serving very good hummus and pita. Great. Um, I just love the the fact of welcoming people back. Um, and I realized to do that a lot more often, it'd be probably best suited in a neighborhood where you get truly just locals coming in after work or on the weekend with their family. Um, and just to come through and really like have that sort of sense of like, oh, they're a regular here. Um, you kind of needed to be in the neighborhood versus maybe like the heart of downtown or some of the mm-hmm. busiest restaurant neighborhoods. Um, and so far, it's been great. Part part of it too is is um, that we <clears throat> are trying to create an environment where people are like feel comfortable and familiar with what we're doing, and so um, we are like not changing the menu too much, mm-hmm. um, so that people come back for the things that they want. Um, and no one really should be opening a restaurant to open it for like the first year. We're trying to open a restaurant that will last a decade or more. And so, um, a neighborhood restaurant typically does that Mm -hmm. as opposed to like the hot new city spot. But it's also a destination because you're pretty well known from your previous stints. So sure. Fairly well known. (laughs) I mean, you know, I could be well known and we could be putting out really not great food, and then it doesn't matter, right? right. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a destination. Um, that helps with getting new customers in the door, and then it's our job to ensure uh, through our service, our food, and our, our, um, our beverage menu to make sure that people are actually interested in coming back. Um, the longevity of our business will rely on repeat customers, not one-time customers. So even if it's someone that comes to Chicago once every two, three years, we want them to feel like they have to come back to Galit the next time they're in town. 
Great. So, Zach, you've cooked uh, alongside some folks who do really outstanding Middle Eastern food. Um, what have you, what sort of inspiration have you drawn from them and what kind of uh, techniques, you know, have you kind of carried forward into your space now? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, I learned a lot from everyone, a lot of different lessons. Um, a few in particular really stand out. Uh, understanding that you have to do a really good version of the thing everyone knows about so they can say, this is the best blank that I've ever had. Um, that's really key. Uh, it's, it's a key component of our business model to make sure that people want to come back for hummus and pita and falafel and baba ganoush and, and those sorts of things. Um, being creative and going into the, the deep, rich cultural heritages and the cuisines and trying to narrate a story about those places and people and bring that here in a way that has integrity and attention to detail and care. Um, that usually shines through in the food or the beverage that we're providing. Um, and then also, uh, I learned a lot when I lived in California about approaching a menu with seasonality and with local ingredients and understanding how to present things uh, with a sense of time and place. Um, and when I eat places, restaurants that really speak to me or restaurants that really encapsulate that idea that you can be um, in the spring in the central coast of California on the Pacific and like taste what that is and you can experience that and sort of think about it and you're like, wow, this is really true to form. And so what we try and do is working with a lot of local farmers um, and cooking with the seasons and changing some of our menu regularly, not all of it. Um, and doing that really helps to like push us to evolve. When we run out of tomatoes, then it's time to switch to fall vegetables. And mm -hmm. so it forces us to be creative and look at what we're doing and the narratives that we're that we're telling um, through that point of view. So I know that Israeli food is kind of trending now, but you're trying to introduce a broader scope of Middle Eastern food and sort of move people beyond hummus and falafel, or is that still like what they come there mainly for? I would argue the hummus and falafel definitely gets them in the door. And the rest of the menu is like, what is that? What is this? Um, and as to go back to what Zach was saying, how we want to make sure people come back that second and third time, they'll come back for hummus and falafel, but then they want to try that new thing that might be a little bit more seasonal. Um, I would argue so the, the menu is more so Middle Eastern, told through the lens of what the immigrant community is currently eating around Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. um, and Zach can jump in on that, and he actually has some experiences living with different families in different neighborhoods, which really tells a story. Um, so there are influences from North Africa, Eastern Europe, West Asia, um, a little bit of everything, um, which is really unique. So you have people from all over Chicago who are from different parts of the world, and mm -hmm. they're like, oh, that sounds similar to you know, what my grandmother used to make from here, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, like there are dishes that are on the menu um, since we opened that are kind of um, a great example of that. We have a dish called the Iraqi Kube Halab. And um, 
Kube is usually, or Kibe, depending on where you're from, is this um, uh, kind of like a dumpling. It's typically fried with a bulgur wheat crust with cooked lamb, pine nuts, and spices on the inside. Um, the Iraqi or the kind of Persian version of that, um, instead of using bulgur wheat, uses saffron rice as a crust. Um, all the versions I've had are kind of like, they're good, but they're not like, they're, the rice is kind of mushy and, and the meat is kind of bland. And um, we wanted to showcase uh, a dish in its true form with flavor profiles that are interesting um, and execute it at the highest possible level as chefs. So the rice has like separate grains. It's like really beautifully cooked mm -hmm. rice. You're using the highest quality local lamb that we're getting from a farmer, uh, highest quality saffron that's coming from Afghanistan. And then it's got this beautiful golden raisin and um, almond kind of sauce mm -hmm. that, um, you know, dried fruits and nuts and uh, are like very typical in Iraqi or Persian or Iranian food. And then just like a showering of dill on top for bright, fresh, like sort of antsy flavor. And um, we've had people that like eat it and they like cry in oh. the dining room. They're like, I can't believe that someone's making this dish. And so um, some people may not like that, but some people evokes a very strong memory or they're just generally intrigued. And so when we're, when we're approaching you know, we don't really call it Israeli food. We're calling it Middle Eastern food mm -hmm. because I'm not from Israel, although a lot of my training was in Israel or cooking that kind of food. And Andres is certainly not Israeli. He's a quarter Palestinian. And so we're just trying to cook from a region. Um, and then we also approach things with, like, we want to highlight a spice or a technique, but do it with seasonal ingredients. So we wanted to, like really showcase Persian lime this summer, which are these dried, um, like, blackened limes mm. that you can use in teas or you can grind up and use it as a spice. And so we just basically made a Persian lime and tomato dish um, and really focused on how do, we, how do we use all the other ingredients as a vessel to show people the boldness of this spice, of this flavor profile. So what does your server training look like as you kind of try to encourage them to sell some of these less familiar dishes and not just the hummus and pita. Sure, so it's almost like there's a short-term goal and there's like a long-term goal with it. Um, one thing that we give all new um, team members in their training is the same packet. Whether like you're a server, whether you're back of the house, whether you're a steward, you all get the same information. The idea is we're all hosting a dinner party so everyone in the room can always be there to assist whichever guest question. Um, and I think the, the short-term goal is getting them to have that sense of familiarity. And a lot of the menu blurbs and little descriptors are fun, punny, maybe even a little bit dad joke-ish. Um, but they make it enticing and relatable and where it might be like a new language when you're reading the menu. There's words in there that are like, oh, that sounds good. I kind of want to try that. Um, and then these servers are very well versed in, you know, they have one-on-one -on -one conversations with Zach or every new dish gets a thorough, like, here's how it is prepared. Um, so that's kind of like the short-term goal is make it approachable, 
and then if they have questions, be able to answer all the preparation steps behind it. And But the long-term goal is we can't really dumb it down. Like, we're not going to call falafel, you know, fried chickpea batter, kind of like little fried chickpea balls. We're not going to change what anything is that's doing a disservice, we think, to the cuisine itself. So over time, sure, guests may not understand what things are coming in, but their second and third time, we hope that they'll be like, oh, I know what that is. Like, I've had that the first time. Or they go to a new restaurant in a different city or a different part of the world, and they're like, I had that at Khalid. Um, we have to be true to what the food actually is, but also make it fun for them where they read it on the menu. They're like, I want that. Those, um, those new hire packets include um, like a, an insane amount of information. So there's like an a, um, a entire couple pages of glossary terms, vocabulary. Um, there's like maps of Israel and the Middle East. There's wine maps of the different regions of Israel and the Middle yeah. East. Um, there are menu descriptions. There's an entire matrix that we have for our service team for allergies. So we like to make sure like there's, you know, someone might know, not know what bulgur is, not knowing that it is gluten and they might have a gluten allergy. Um, how can we adjust those dishes accordingly? Um, and, uh, you know, we're not the first people in Chicago to kind of bring new, unique food to the marketplace. Um, like a great example and someone that I um, revere a lot, you know, when Rick and Deanne Bayless opened up Frontera, no one knew what like a torta was, mm -hmm. you know, like no one knew what queso fresco meant. And so they like stuck to their guns. They used their restaurant to educate the public and their guests about what is Mexican cuisine. And now a lot of that terminology is like very commonplace in the dining scene. It's super easy for them to like talk about what a tamale is. Um, and, and so like that's kind of the same idea is just to kind of like allow it to naturally organically grow into the nomenclature of restaurants. Zach, you're known for your um, house-baked pitas and the special equipment you put in to make these pitas. Can you talk a little bit about that? And um, yeah, so we, I've, at Shia, we had a, um, a Neapolitan pizza oven, uh, which is great for baking bread, um, if you know how to use it properly. Uh, so it's the oven that I'm familiar with. It's imported from, from Naples. Um, we had it installed. Um, it's 100% wood fire. We use it at about 700 degrees, mm -hmm. you know, six to 800 degrees. Usually 700 is the sweet spot. Um, uh, I can make about 15 pitas in about six minutes. The cooks are a little bit less than that, so we can <laughs> make a lot best. of pita. Um, and the dough is really interesting. Um, it's not really a complicated process. It's just understanding the science behind bread making and being able to excuse me, adapt to that a little bit. So uh, we're using um, something that a lot of breads in the United States aren't really doing, where they're using a lot of like stale, shelf-stable flours that are um, like the germs removed. Uh, we're using 20% of our flour is a fresh-milled uh, um, turkey red wheat from... Uh, usually from Kansas, but it's actually in Illinois, mm. um, from a company called The Mill at Janie's Farm. 
Oh, cool. um, and we're getting that brought into us, you know, 100 pounds a week. And about 25% of our dough, um, is, that flour is in our dough. Um, it's like a, it's like not that wet of a dough. Um, we are making it on a daily basis, and then um, we ferment it in a refrigerated cooler for 48 hours before it get gets used. So, um, and then we take a little bit of dough from the day before and put it into the new batch of dough as it's mixing, um, which is a technique in Italian bread baking called a biga, where they're kind of like, it's like a sourdough starter, but it's not really because mm. we're using fresh yeast because um, uh, I find sourdough pita to be a little unappealing. It's a little bit too tart with so many of the things that we're making that are high acid. So um, we're like building flavor over time. So theoretically in, um, you know, five years, that biga is going to be adding an incredible amount of flavor, barring that we don't ever lose a dough from before. Right now mm -hmm. we're, I don't know, like eight months into our biga, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So all these different techniques and understandings of bread baking, like make that better. And then you're adding like the wood fired oven element. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just really rich and nutty and fluffy and crusty and all the good things. And everybody gets that when they come in. Um, yeah, pretty much everybody gets that. Uh, we do pita and hummus, pita with hummus and our salad team, which are like a little spread of dips and pickles and vegetables. Um, and it's uh, we just serve it because that's like the way that it would be at someone's house. Mm. Always have more pita on hand. <clears throat> Guests are always like, "Oh my god, I need more of that." And then they realize that's a heavy piece of dough there. So by the yeah. time they get to their entree, yeah, each each pita is like each pita is like a third of a pound. Mm, wow. Um, and so like when people are like asking for more pita, it's kind of like, oh man, like that's like a lot. You're gonna like be really full. Like I always tell um, friends when they come in for the first time, like don't make a rookie mistake and eat too much pita. Like pace yourself. It is unlimited, but. You, you know, be aware. You're going to fill up on it. I'll keep that in mind when I come and visit. <clears throat> so that's the, I mean, the food, the level of care that goes into the food is, is quite impressive. Can you talk a little bit about the drinks program as well? Sure. So uh, one thing I've loved most about our beverage program is that we're using the same ingredients that go into the food we're using in the beverage program. Um, our bar director, someone I've worked with before, Lydia Duncan, she's very creative at balancing any kind of cocktail and depending on the type of palette you're going for or cuisine. Um, and we, I mean, there are often times where like either just her and Zach or the three of us is like, Zach can be able to go, hey, Olivia, I'm using this product. I got a little bit of leftover. What do you want to do with it? Or like, what can you do with it? So um, one of the really cool things that we're doing with the food that leads into the beverage program is we have a farmer that's growing hyssop for us which is kind of like a minty oregano. It's traditionally used in a za'atar. Um, so we're using that and we're drying it in house. And then the stems from it, we use to infuse gin. Mm. And what kind of like our house gin and tonic drink is a hyssop infused gin and tonic. Um, so it's really like, one, you're not gonna find hyssop anywhere in a lot of places, but it's also, it's the same ingredients that are going into the food are going into the beverages. Um, and there's even one with a little bit of lavender in it too, which is pretty cool. 
And then our wine program, I think, is really starting to set ourselves apart as well, where we spent the first few months when Zach moved here was, and he alluded to it a little bit earlier, with taking the time and effort to source the ingredients you want, and that kind of included like the beverage program with the wine. Um, right now, there's probably close to a dozen wines where the only place to get it in the state of Illinois is at Galit, and that's because we took the effort and got the distributor who wanted it to bring it in for us. Um, and people are coming in to kind of get the whole Middle Eastern experience. Like their eyes are going straight to the Middle Eastern wine section, mm -hmm. uh, which is another fun part for one, training our staff of, hey, what are these profiles and the tasting notes of these wines? And really opening the door to <clears throat> the customer who hasn't really had a lot of Middle Eastern wine, which is fun. Let's pivot a little from food to more sort of operational things. Can you can you talk a little bit about the kitchen culture? You know, you both I'm sure have experienced a wide range of kitchen cultures. Can you talk about kind of what you've tried to cultivate um, in this space and, and how you've done that? I think the I think the biggest thing for me, having run a few restaurants before this, um, opening up a few restaurants as like a culinary director. Um, the big thing for me, having we both went to Tulane Business School, has been to try and figure out a way to make sure that the norm for us is that the kitchen and the restaurant is like a workplace, and so we're professional. Like, obviously, like we have fun, we make jokes, like it's a casual atmosphere, like we're not wearing ties to work, but um, we speak to each other respectfully. Uh, we established a set of core values for the company. Um, there's nine of them. I, I mean, I could list them off if you want. But, um, so those are the, the, those are the pillars of our business. So everything that we kind of do, um, those are the underlying factors. Uh, and then we set, uh, when everyone gets onboarded, we have, we set expectations for what they should know is coming. So we do 30-day, 90-day, 180-day evaluations. They're very professional. There's two managers in every one. Um, we have like a stratified system for pay raises. So there's no like favoritism for pay. Um, we have like interviews. We actually check references, which is atypical for restaurants. Uh, we won't hire anybody unless we have checked a reference and it's positive. Uh, we have like uh, very uh, exact training methods. So in general, like we're trying to operate as though we're a large company. Um, we don't have an HR department. We kind of do everything ourselves, but we've kind of talked about like when we open, if we ever open another restaurant, the first hire would be an HR director um, because I mean, all the paperwork's a lot. Uh, and then, um, we also do uh, a 2% employee wellness, what are we calling it? It's, uh, employee benefits assistance. Employee benefits Ooh. assistance. Um, so we, uh, on our own accord, before we opened the restaurant, decided to get healthcare coverage for employees that was fairly aggressive for a small business. Um, premiums are really high, it's got great coverage. Um, we fully cover uh, healthcare for our four managers, and then all employees uh, on and I are covering about 50% out of the budget of the restaurant. 
um, some of our employees make a higher than market range, especially in the back of the house. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, some of them would not be able to afford, while living in Chicago, to pay for healthcare premium. Uh, a lot of restaurants have like a far below 50% enrollment rate. Um, we use the 2% um, from our guests as opposed to raising prices on what some people already deem to be very expensive hummus and falafel um, <laughs> to subsidize the employees' premiums. And um, so another 25% gets covered. And we have, like, I don't know, almost an 80% enrollment. Yeah, it's pretty high. Um, we have in total close to around 47, 48 employees. Um, and then most of which that are eligible being full-time working 30 hours a week are enrolling. Um, and a lot of my time I am happy to spend like just walking them through like honestly what health insurance is. Mm -hmm. Here's what a premium is. Here's what you'll have to pay every week. Here's how you can find a doctor, most of which um, never had a primary care physician um, and having them find one and then actually going to the doctor it it's something that a lot of people take for granted and I a lot of my prior restaurant experience uh, I worked for a larger accounting firm and the benefits were like you know through the roof for the large companies the benefits are great and honestly it's something that I took maybe for granted at the time realizing that a lot of people don't have even access to these things so it's one thing providing access, and it's another thing to actually make it affordable for them to enroll, which is the biggest thing. Um, and it's it's been really, really great. And then what guests, for the most part, are, are very behind it. Mm -hmm. There are questions about it, for sure, that people are like, what is this? Um, and then, you know, really when you explain to it that it's to make it affordable to them so that they actually enroll is great. It's just 2%. I've seen it higher in certain places. Mm -hmm. We're not asking it to be covered because by no means is the entire cost of it being covered. But it's again, it makes it approachable, or excuse me, affordable rather, um, for our team to enroll. And then they also, if they wish, they can enroll in dental and vision on their own accord. Mm -hmm. I mean, but they're both, I mean, they're solid plans. Um, and we're thrilled by the, you know, enrollment rate, really. It's also like, I mean, like to be honest it's also self-serving like it helps employee retention mm -hmm. like if they're happy because they're getting paid accordingly and their health care is covered like it means that they're not going to go leave for greener pastures and we can have a company where we're growing our employees for a long period of time whereas you know a lot of restaurants you know turnovers like within six months so you know health care having um like regular evaluation process, like these sort of things are keeping in check to keep our turnover down, which in turn helps our profits because we're not paying to train every few months. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, in general, it just seems like as people that were in restaurants the last 10 years, it seems like it's the right thing to do. Um, and it makes smart, it makes it smart business-wise. Mm -hmm. Well, you must have had an easier time than some attracting employees then? I mean, were there, was that a challenge when you opened in Chicago or were there I, other challenges involved? Definitely some challenges and the labor market in restaurants in general is pretty, it's meager. There's a, mm -hmm. you know, there's little supply and Chicago in the last couple of years had a big boom mm -hmm. and it's kind of like if one, you know, big restaurant closes, that talent pool is just going to help open the next big restaurant coming in. Um, 
I would argue we were fortunate where a couple of weeks before open, we actually could be selective, which was a rare and good problem Ooh. to have. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work for a great restaurant group here in Chicago, and we've had a few people that I knew come through. And then with tax um, accolades and coming into Chicago, people were kind of like, this could be interesting, this could be really cool. So I think mm -hmm. we were fortunate than most, um, especially for an open. And then with the recent success, it's only, you know, turnover is natural in restaurants. Uh, Percentage-wise, for an opening, I think we've been actually a little bit less than the average. Um, and we've had most of our opening team kind of still hang, hang strong, hang true. Uh, but those that have come on board have been as talented, if not more, and as caring about their product. And that's nothing against those that have come through, but it's not like people want to come and be a part of it. Um, so elaborating more on that kitchen culture, it's definitely not the norm in restaurants, but it is attractive mm -hmm. to employees. Um, and we also, there's a terrible norm in the industry of, you know, substance abuse and, and we're, we have a zero tolerance policy for any of that in our workplace where we don't do shift drinks. We didn't do any of that. Uh, when we try new beverages or alcoholic beverages in house, we make sure every employee, you know, spits it out. It's just a taste. Um, it's definitely a little bit different. Some people are like, why are you doing this to me? And then it's like, well, your buddy that used to work at X restaurant with you, he would leave the restaurant a little tipsy and then only go to a bar and get more tipsy. And now it's a problem. Anything we can help do to make sure it doesn't become a problem, we're happy to do. Um, but back to the difficulties of the opening, uh, being in a, such a you know saturated market uh, and with a lot of unknowns, it's, I mean, it's been great, but this is a, it's a mom and pop organization here. Mm -hmm. uh, you can call, I guess, I'm the mom of the group. <laughs> That's gonna, I'm not gonna I don't think it's a debate. Uh, but it's still just really the two of us mm -hmm. with a couple of, you know, really strong sous chefs and managers to help us, like, see this vision through. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts, definitely. That And even working in accounting and my past, you know, life with the restaurant group I worked for and with the accounting firm before that, like, there's only so many things that you see firsthand. Um, so a lot of new learning experiences, um, uh, but you know, that's part of the fun and it's part of the challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, I think opening and hoping the construction would go through well in winter was definitely like a, a what if, mm -hmm. um, I'm sure Zach had a fun time, you know, keeping in touch with me cause I got married and I went on my honeymoon. <laughs> uh, I did not plan all this, you know, you can't plan these things. Right. Zach and I first really started talking. And I told him, you know, give me a minute. I just, you know, bought a ring. Let me make sure this is actually going to be a long time thing before uh, I commit to opening a restaurant. Um, so just finding the time, like it's, there's almost never enough time in a day to open a restaurant. But mm -hmm. we are both very passionate and caring and arguably workaholics into what we mm -hmm. we do. But um, yeah, we opened maybe a month after the actual target date before we broke ground oh, which that's is great excellent. yeah um stayed pretty much on budget which is great like it's it was definitely a lot of oh my god what it's opening a restaurant everyone can talk about you know their challenges um <laughs> but in the end fortunately only a month after the original target date which is pretty cool 
And I know you did um, some marketing at the uh, National Restaurant Show last year. I remember seeing you do a demo mm-hmm. there. Are there other ways that you got the word out about yourself and the restaurant? I know a lot of people knew about you already, but... Sure. I think um, for me, uh, I am not from Chicago. I have no connection to Chicago. And um, I mean, been waiting for the why Chicago question. <laughs> yeah. So let's yeah. just get that one why out of the Chicago? way. Why uh, Chicago? <laughs> my wife and I wanted to move to Chicago. We wanted to end up here. We came here a couple times, really liked it. And that was pretty much, that's pretty much it. And then I pursued the business that I wanted to open here. Um, which seemed to make sense and has subsequently done fairly well so far. Um, But I'm not from Chicago, and this is a town of chefs and restaurateurs who, um, they work. Like, this isn't a celebrity chef town. If anyone is a big deal, they also put their time in, um, and they worked for a long time. And so for me... Uh, when I came to Chicago, I had a few colleagues and friends. I met with them, helped get connected to vendors and wine distributors and stuff like that. Um, but uh, part of it is like being in Chicago and working at the restaurant, people knowing that I'm working at the restaurant, which is what I want to do, mm-hmm. um, and showing people that Um, I can be a part of the Chicago culinary community, the restaurant community, just by being present. Um, I know there are other people that have opened up in Chicago and kind of like planted their flag here and then are never around, um, which was like never my intention. So, you know, we, we prefer in the first year to do a lot of like stuff that is within Chicago city limits. So NRA, Home and Housewares, Chicago Vermeer, done demos at all these things. A lot of our charity work is going to be on Chicago-based stuff. Um, we're, you know, we're donating special dinners and, you know, I'll cook at your house for mm. big charity galas that support, like, Children's Museum and stuff like that. So we've done a lot of that stuff because we want to be part of the community because mm-hmm. you can't be a neighborhood restaurant if you're not dialed into you know, your neighborhood, whether it's close by or your Chicago neighborhood. So that's been really our focus on that. Great. Um, I think also it helped our personal relationship at first and then now our professional one. Um, but the James Beard Awards being in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, that's actually how Zach and I really kind of strengthened our relationship. <clears throat> the restaurant I was at the time, Nico Strio, hosted Shia the year was nominated and then eventually won Best New Restaurant. Um, and then we really kept talking from there, but with that experience, Zach got to actually work with some Chicago chefs, and then when he moved here last October now, uh, the first things we did was like, you know, go to the different farmer's markets and things like that, so we can, and if you go early enough, you'll see all the chefs of Chicago. Mm-hmm. If you are there after 11, you're too late, and now you're just, arguing, you're trying to get a sample versus someone's dog or baby, you reach out for it. <laughs> um, but some of the better chefs of Chicago is at these local markets and you know Zach met vendors and chefs almost like every same Saturday morning which is pretty cool and helped jumpstart I think a mm. lot of relationships here. So you guys have had astounding success you've been packed pretty much every night can you talk a little bit about crowds and how you manage that uh, it's like a blessing and a, a curse because 
people, you know, hold off on, on trying to get in there because it's just so booked. We have, we have 120 seats in the restaurant. So there's 20 seats at our bar and 100 in the dining room. 10 of the seats at the bar we put there because we thought we would need place a place for people to wait before their table was ready. Mm-hmm. So when we opened the restaurant, we were like, this is a lot of seats and we're probably not going to use them all. And now that's the opposite problem that we have. And people sit there and do full four-course meals there. Um, I mean, how do you get into the restaurant? Plan ahead. Um, roll the dice. Show up. See if you can get on a wait list. People cancel all the time. Um, we have the seats at the bar and at the bar communal table are walk-ins. Hmm. So people in our neighborhood, we tell all the time, like, you know, just come in, and if there's a seat over there, you can grab it, because we still need to be a neighborhood restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You do most of the reservations. So, it's out. It's only a problem, I think, or, or excuse me, it's only a blessing, not a problem, to have the crowd. Um, Zach's talking about like our communal table again. We thought it would just be like a hangout, and it's now, it's twelve seats there, and we set them for serve for dining right off the bat. Um, our bar is also full dining, so what we, again, what we thought would be about 100 seats, we can actually probably seat 120 uh, at one given time because everyone is coming in. And it's a whole big communal atmosphere, which is pretty fun with the type of cuisine it is. Like it's kind of meant to be family style and shared. So it's the communal table. One of the things I love seeing most is those people that were waiting to come in and now they're next to each other. They both don't know what they're getting, but they're talking about their experience the entire time. And now they're friends. They find out that they live you know, a couple blocks from each other. Um, I, I think this is fun. And I think one thing that's difficult for those that work in the restaurant industry is to take off their restaurant lens and put themselves back into being a guest. And it's like when I train our hosts at the front door, it's, all right, pretend you're the guest walking in and you couldn't get that 6.30, 7 o'clock reservation, but they're coming in and it's four of them at 7 o'clock. They still need to come in and feel like they're going to get sat as soon as we can. It's not we're bouncing them and telling them that it's going to be like several hours. It's what are we actually going to do to make sure that they can enjoy the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that has been a, uh, I guess a, can't think of the word now, but uh, when someone can't make the reservation, they're just showing up or they're joining the notify me list on Resi, which is the operation system we use. Um, And the cool thing with the notify me list is if somebody does cancel, you are the first to find out. There's no like old school wait list, let me get back to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so many people are making reservations so far in advance. Like there's one person that I know by name has had six reservations in the future and they didn't come in for the first time until that sixth time. So they didn't know when they were gonna come in, but all those five canceled, which means someone else on the notify list got that reservation. Mm. That, yeah, it's been a tough one to book, but uh, I do encourage people to join that notify me because we still have like day of cancellations on a Saturday night, we'll have 30 cancellations that Friday. Wow. So there is still that opportunity to come in Mm -hmm. um and being the neighborhood restaurant there's probably three couples i can name right now that i've been in at least a dozen times um so it's not impossible Mm -hmm. i don't want people to be discouraged by seeing like 
Sure, seven o'clock on a Saturday night. It, it is probably going to be a couple months out, but you can do earlier. You can always come on in mm -hmm. and, and add your name to the wait list for a bar or a communal table. Um, but crowds are a good thing. I don't think they're a bad thing. I also, love also a sales pitch here. If you really want to come in with a large party, you can book our private dining room, which is a wonderful experience. Oh, so that's another. Actually, it's a great thing with the notify me list too. So the back part of our dining room uh, seats about twenty four normally for table service. Mm -hmm. If it's reserved for an event, we can do about twenty eight. But we give ourselves like a two week window for that back dining room. So really, the inventory of reservations two weeks out does not include that backspace. Mm. So if you're on that notify me list, you will get a notification as soon as we open up those tables. And I tell people again, it's it's harder training those who don't use their phone a lot or you know, they don't keep in touch with technology. Um, to I mean, to run a profitable and a good business, you have to use technology. So we're using Resi. Sorry for those who don't like using their phone to make a reservation. Um, but if you have the the app and you allow notifications on your phone, it's a simple two clicks of confirm and you're set. Um, so some people are waiting for an email, and then they're like, they call the restaurant. They're like, I got an email like an hour ago, and <laughs> sorry, somebody with the, with the app luck. on their phone already booked that up. So you don't use the phone at all anymore? Oh, like we definitely use it a lot. Oh. The phone does. We hired a, another host just to come in uh, uh, closer to one o'clock just for the sole purpose of answering the phone and getting back to people. Mm -hmm. um, but I will, the inventory in-house, it's the same that you will see online. Mm -hmm. So really, I mean, we encourage our guests who call, we add them ourselves like to that notify list. Um, but no, the phone is nonstop. It, it, it's, it's still very much a thing. Uh, it's just, it's, it's easier, honestly, to book it yourself on the phone. We can happily see if we can maybe move certain things around, but um, yeah, that phone is, it's nonstop. <laughs> well, with all this overflow and demand, are you thinking of opening another place in Chicago? Or? Eventually. <laughs> not, at, not at the moment, but eventually. Would it be the same type of restaurant or would, might it be uh, like more casual or? I don't know. I would say <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be whatever it is. It's, <laughs> so I, I'll say this, it might have things that are similar to Gleet. There will never be another Galit. Yeah. Like, I'm not opening a Galit in Hong Kong. Right. Like, Galit <laughs> is a restaurant that, um, like, Andres is there. I'm in the kitchen. Like, that's our restaurant. That's the one that defines everything else that comes after. So nothing will be remotely close to it. That's all I was going to add is that there will never be a Galit, too. Um, and to Zach's point, I think he hit it on the head. Like, there's something about the experience when a guest walks in and as they see both of us. Um, and it's funny when my friends like make a reservation and they're like, oh, are you going to be there? It's like, I mean, where else am I? I'm one of the three managers for a hundred and almost 20 seat restaurant. I will most certainly likely be there. Um, so it, it's about creating that experience and we're still creating that culture that we care so much about. Um, and until we really have that honed in, um, and it's nice that we're getting a few more days away from the restaurant now, but mm -hmm. until we have that really set in stone, we'll consider the next opportunity. Zach and Andres, thanks so much for joining us and sharing Galit's story.
Stay tuned for the next menu feed as we delve into more restaurant insights that will help you stay ahead of the curve. This episode of Menu Feed is brought to you by Bush's Best. With the incredible variety of Bush's Best bean products, they've got you covered with everything from loaded fries to hummus, chili to burritos, succotash to stews. The power of beans is truly incredible in nutrition, versatility, and possibility. Plus, each of these recipes has been carefully crafted to make sure they always attract and they always amaze. For more information, please visit bushbeansfoodservice.com. 